Good morning, everyone. I'm Steve Grundman. I'm the Lund Fellow for Emerging Defense Challenges here at the Atlantic Council. Um, I am your host, and my uh, single duty is to welcome and orient you to what we're up to today. Uh, the purpose of today's uh, event in our Commander Series is to hear from the Secretary of the Air Force, uh, Deborah James. She's going to talk about capabilities, reassurance, and presence uh, the U.S. Air Force in transatlantic security. Indeed, this is an event uh, in a uh, cousin initiative to mine, uh, the Transatlantic Security Initiative, which is part of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security. Um, uh, you, uh, we, uh, in addition to the secretary, um, a couple other uh, folks will come here on the stage. Michael Anderson, who is the uh, president and chief executive of officer of Saab North America. Um, I'm going to invite Michael to come up to the stage in a minute and, and formally introduce the secretary. <clears throat> and then after her remarks, uh, she's going to be joined on the stage by Missy Ryan, the Pentagon correspondent for the Washington Post, who will uh, both pose some questions and also moderate some questions from the audience during that period of time. So this is the Commander Series. Um, it's now a longstanding uh, series uh, in, in which we most typically um, hear from four-star uh, general officers of, of one sort or another, although uh, rest assured, Madam Secretary, you won't be the first civilian uh, to take the Commander's, uh, Commander Series stage. Uh, there have been others, uh, and, it's, and it's fitting, uh, indeed fitting, that, uh, that we, we do that. Um, we're especially grateful to Saab North America for being a, a sponsor, not just in this year, but in many years running. Um, that is uh, as much as I uh, wanted to take time to say. Uh, I do uh, now want to welcome to the stage Michael Anderson, as I say, the CEO of Saab North America, who will make a proper introduction of the secretary. Michael. Thank you, Steve. Good morning, everyone. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, again, my name is uh, Michael Anderson. I'm the president of CEO of Saab North America. Uh, for almost 80 years, Saab has been on the forefront of technology and innovation, developing products to enable national defense to increase the safety and security of the public. During that time, uh, we have grown from a relatively small company dedicated to building airplanes for the Swedish government to a global provider of defense and security solutions here. Here in the U.S., we have been active for more than 40 years, supplying the U.S. government and industry with our products and technology. We have also been actively promoting not only close and robust U.S. and Swedish bilateral relationship, but also strong trans transatlantic relationships between U.S., Canada, and Europe in, in general. As a global defense and security company, responsibility and commitment towards people and society are fundamental to us. And we strongly believe that continuing to build upon already strong relationships established between our respective nations is essential in order to ensure our ability to promote peace and security for as many as possible in the future. And looking at the global security situation today, that's more valid than ever before. This is also why our support to the Atlantic Council and our sponsorship of the Commander Series, now actually on its eighth year, are so valuable and important to us. Uh, therefore, we are very pleased to see so many of you here today. And also, it's a great honor for me to introduce our special guest today, the Honorable Deborah Lee James, Secretary of the United States Air Force. As the Secretary of the Air Force, Ms. James oversees an annual budget of approximately 140 billion U.S. dollars. 
She's responsible for the affairs of the development of the Air Force, including the organizing, training, equipping, and providing the welfare for its nearly 660,000 uh, active duty, guard, reserve, and civilian airmen and their families. She was confirmed and appointed as the 23rd Secretary of the Air Force in December 2013, and has more than 30 years of senior homeland and national security experience in the federal government and the private sector. Prior to her current position, Ms. James served as president of SIAC's technical engineering sector. In the years preceding, she held a number of additional positions within SIAC, including the senior vice president and director of Homeland Security. In early 2000, she was executive vice president and CEO of business executives for national security. And from 98 to 2000, Ms. James was vice president of international operations and marketing at United Technologies. During the Clinton administration from 93 to 98, Ms. James served as, at, in the Pentagon as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Reserve Affairs. Her early career included roles as Assistant to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Legislative Affairs and as a professional staff member on the House Armed Services Committee. These are just a few highlights of your very distinguished career and service to the United States. Madam Secretary, we're very honored and very happy to have you here today. Please join me in welcoming Secretary James to the stage. Thank you very much to Steve and the Atlanta Council. And Michael, thank you for that lovely introduction. Anytime people go through the various highlights of my career, it reminds me just how long I have been around. Makes me feel a little bit old. But before I go any further, I do want to give a couple of shout outs here. Um, first, I want to give a shout out to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ian Fairchild. Where are you, Ian? He's our Air Force fellow. Oh, he's uh, taking a coffee break. That's nice. He's my guy, and he's not here. But anyway, he's your Air Force fellow this, this uh, year at the Atlantic Council, and he was telling me on the way in just what a fantastic um, experience this has been for him. And if I might say, it is always a fantastic experience for me to come back to the Atlantic Council, because you see, during part of the time I was with SAIC, I was on the board here. Um, as well as I had the opportunity to come back a time or so. I think it was January of 2015, if I'm not mistaken, when I had the opportunity to come here as Secretary of the Air Force. So it does feel a little bit like a homecoming every time I get to come to Atlantic Council. And frankly, I can't imagine a better place to come to on a morning like this when we are about to have what I hope is going to be an important conversation about the role of the United States generally, but I'm going to zero in on the role of the United States Air Force specifically um, in the transatlantic uh, security picture. Um, it's an area that I certainly care a great deal about, and it is one that I think has become even more relevant during my tenure as Secretary of the Air Force, which has been for about three years now. Because, you see, I would submit to all of you that the transatlantic security community, that is to say the group of like-minded countries who are committed to NATO's vision of a Europe whole, free, and at peace, is facing greater challenges today than at any time since the end of the Cold War. And there's a few trends that are occurring simultaneously that make me feel that this way and that are contributing to this uh, scenario. 
First is by invading, occupying, and attempting to annex Crimea, Russia has demonstrated that it is trying to overturn the norms that have kept the peace in the region for decades. Second, when I was in Estonia and Ukraine, I heard all about Russia's use of cyber attacks and the way that they flood the news media with disinformation and fake news. And now, with the very recent announcement by the US intelligence community that Russia acted to interfere in our elections, involving, I might add, they say, at the highest levels of the Russian government, that marks an extremely troubling development and one that I'm afraid that we're going to be dealing with uh, for years to come, the reverberations from that development. Third, Russia is among the countries that are investing in anti-access area denial strategies like integrated air defenses that could allow a hostile actor to create a bubble around a certain territory in which they could then dictate special rules to the detriment of others. Moreover, Russia has been conducting numerous acts of unsafe airmanship and showing disrespect for the territorial integrity of others. And I'll come back to this more on this later. And finally, fourth, but certainly not least, are violent extremist groups, most notably Daesh. They're spreading messages of violence to vulnerable communities in many countries, even as they and other groups, like the Syrian government, are causing a humanitarian catastrophe that is pushing large numbers of migrants and refugees into Europe. Our southern European partners, including Turkey and Greece, Italy and a few others are extremely focused on the threats to their societies posed by the influx of migrants and refugees along the so-called southern flank of Europe, just as the allies along the eastern and northern flank are very focused on Russia. But this is precisely where the importance of the entirety of NATO comes to the forefront. Because you see, rather than being a tale of two Europes, which this could sound like a tale of two Europes, you have the southern versus the eastern and northern interest. But to the contrary, this is a case of the entire region being united as a single defensive alliance focused on safeguarding the freedom and security of all of its members against any threats. Since I became Secretary of the Air Force in December of 2013, I've had the opportunity to visit and meet with my counterparts in 19 of the 28 members of the NATO Allowance. And in addition, I met with enhanced opportunity partners, Sweden and Finland. And I heard one consistent message on all of these trips. And that message was that our allies and partners want more US Air Force. They want more training. They want more exchanges, more presence, more interoperable equipment. In recent years, we have expanded our presence and efforts in Europe as a way to reassure allies, to deter aggression, and demonstrate the unique capabilities that our Air Force brings to the combined operation, the combined fight. <clears throat> our relationships with NATO members and partners are among our closest. Uh, but today, we need to double down in the face of the threats that I mentioned just a few moments ago. In addition, I believe we need to open up the aperture on how we collaborate. We need to develop innovative solutions, at least for the Air Force, in our three domains of focus. And those three domains, of course, are in the air, in space, and in cyberspace. And the reason why we need to do this is we need to create the most effective 21st century security partnership possible. And I think we are in the process of doing just that. In recent years, many of our NATO allies and partners have noticed a major 
increase in the number of airspace violations and other irresponsible acts of airmanship on the part of Russian aircraft. I mentioned this a few moments ago and I want to come back to it now. Fortunately, the transatlantic community is coming together in response to these actions. The most visible of these efforts is the Baltic Air Policing Mission. Since Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia became members of NATO in 2004, 16 NATO nations have participated in, in this mission, which protects the national airspace of our Baltic allies 24-7, 365. The German Air Force contingent that is flying the Baltic Air Policing Mission in Estonia as we speak reported, con reported conducting more than 30 scrambles between the end of August and the beginning of November this year, intercepting Russian aircraft that were flying near civilian air routes with their transponders turned off. And I was in Finland back in October, just after, within days of Russian aircraft committing two violations of Finnish airspace, one of many such incidents the Finns have seen in recent months. And indeed, our own United States Air Force has also witnessed similar conduct. Among the most notable incidents was back in April, when a Russian fighter made an aggressive and unsafe intercept of an Air Force reconnaissance plane during a routine flight in international airspace over the Baltic Sea. Now to me, if you add up all of these different incidents, all of this suggests that presence, joint training, and political resolve are extremely important at this point in time, because this is a point in time where there is a great deal of push and push and test and test going on. Indeed, that's precisely what the European Reassurance Initiative is all about. Through ERI, <clears throat> the United States Air Force is beefing up our bilateral and multilateral training calendar with European allies and partners. We're increasing the amount of pre-positioned equipment in the region, plus fuel, ammunition, and other supplies that would allow our forces to respond rapidly in a crisis. We're improving infrastructure at bases in the region so that we have many flexible options for planes and other assets, further enhancing our responsiveness. We're intensifying efforts to build partner capacity with newer NATO members and partners so that they can fully participate in their own collective security. We're demonstrating that we can deploy air dominance capabilities at great distances, just like we did last spring when we sent fifth generation F-22 Raptors to Romania and just like we will do once again this spring when we will send F-15s from the Louisiana and the Florida National Guard to deploy as a theater security package to various locations in Europe. Now this year we renamed the ERI, the European De Deterrence Initiative, to reflect that our presence in Europe does more than reassure. Our forces are there as part of an alliance package to deter aggression. In the National Defense Authorization Act for 2017, Congress reiterated its support for this initiative and for the President's budget request of about $3.4 billion, which, by the way, was a tripling uh, as compared to the 2016 amount. Now, since we're talking about increasing our financial commitment to our allies, I, I have to mention that a big part of participating in collective security is ensuring that every NATO member has the equipment and well-trained personnel that they need. And that's why, certainly in all of my conversations with my counterparts in the region, I have stressed the importance of every country in the alliance uh, putting in place a plan to meet that targeted spending of 2% of GDP for defense. 
and we are seeing some positive trends in this direction, but there is certainly much more that needs to happen, particularly in the case of a number of countries. Now, one area in particular where there is good news and progress has been made is in acquisitions of interoperable equipment, and here I'm thinking specifically of the F-35. We're very proud uh, to already be hosting pilots and maintainers from Norway, Italy, the Netherlands, and others for training at Luke Air Force Base. And now that the F-35 has been declared combat capable, we will deploy our newest fighter to Europe in the not too distant future. Matter of fact, if I were a betting woman, I wouldn't be at all surprised if the F-35 didn't make an appearance perhaps next summer. The unique combination of stealth, situational awareness, and sensor fusion will play an important role in reassuring allies and providing deterrence. Now, many of our partners have already begun to express the ways that they expect the F-35 to transform the battlefield, even in the A2AD, the anti-access area denial environment, and make coordination easier through the use of fully interoperable equipment. So all of this is important, but NATO is about more than just deterrence and the threat emanating from Russia. And by the way, the Air Force, the United States Air Force, has roles that it plays in these other threat environments as well. For example, collectively, we have the heavy airlift wing managed by NATO and operate, operating out of Papa Air Base in Hungary. It operates three C-17 strategic transport aircraft that are built to the same specifications as the C-17s operated by the U.S. Air Force. There's 12 nations that are involved with this, the United States, plus nine other NATO members, plus Sweden and Finland. They're all members of this program, and they share the operating responsibilities and expenses for the aircraft. Now, these aircraft have been deployed on important air mobility missions, including ferrying supplies to Afghanistan and Iraq to support combat operations, conducting humanitarian assistance missions in Haiti, and supporting international peacekeeping operations in Africa. The capability allows uh, the Euro-Atlantic community to respond quickly to emerging crises that do not fit squarely into combat operations, and it also draws heavily upon the expertise developed by the Air Force as part of our global reach mission. So we would expect the trend toward shared assets, like the example that I just gave you, that this trend will likely continue in the future. And I think another prime area where it may well work is air refueling, which is another mission that uh, our mobility forces have a long history in. We fully support NATO and our allies acquiring these force multiplying capabilities because it enhances our collective ability to operate together and to respond to all types of global challenges. And by the way, I, want, I don't want to be remiss in failing to recognize the important role of NATO in Afghanistan. Certainly we, the United States, are very, very appreciative of NATO in resolute support and of many of the NATO members who have gathered with us in the anti-Daesh, anti-ISIS uh, coalition in, uh, in uh, Iraq and in Syria. As we deepen our relationships with our allies and partners in the transatlantic security community, we're also making strides to bring our mechanisms for cooperation well into the 21st century. Uh, NATO, for example, has now established 24 centers of excellence to assist in developing doctrine, improve capabilities and interoperability, and experiment on evolving concepts. And these centers cover topics from analysis and simulations of air operations. That one is placed in Lyon, France. Uh, 
Uh, we have cooperative cyber defense based in Tallinn, Estonia, and joint air power competence in Kalkar, Germany. So these are just a few. There's 24 centers of excellence in all. These centers benefit the entirety of the alliance because they advance shared knowledge and they allow for the pooling of resources and they allow also for the avoidance of duplication of efforts. Moreover, NATO as a whole is acquiring Global Hawk, remotely piloted aircraft for ISR missions through what's called the Alliance Ground Surveillance System. These Global Hawks will be based in Italy and they'll give NATO enhanced capabilities to support protection of ground troops and civilian populations in conflict environments as well as border control and maritime security, which of course is a particular concern among allies who are dealing with this large influx of immigrants and refugees. This capability is important, but ISR relies heavily on the ability to rapidly collect and fuse the information collected by platforms into actionable intelligence that can support the warfighter. And that's why NATO has stood up a combined air operations center in Torrejon, Spain, and a deployable air command and control center based in Poggio Renatico, Italy. And I had the opportunity a few months back to visit both of these facilities, and I was very, very impressed with all the work that I saw being conducted there, as well as with the personnel who were involved with these key missions. And finally, on space issues, once again, we are moving together uh, forward as well. All of us need the best space situational awareness possible. And as a result, we've now begun conducting some tabletop exercises to facilitate closer relationships in this domain, which, after all, is becoming much, much more contest contested and congested each and every day. Now, all of these examples demonstrate how NATO and the Euro-Atlantic community has become more vibrant, more vibrant in our relationships in recent years, which does not really come as a surprise at all to me. Because you see, we in the US Air Force know that we operate best when we train and collaborate with our allies and partners. The coalition fight is central to the way the US conducts operations at all levels. So the bottom line, we work hard to deepen our relationships so that we can fly, fight, and win together. The Twitter hashtag for this event is stronger with allies. And I'm here to tell you that the US Air Force agrees wholeheartedly. And by the way, as you see some of our U.S. airmen over the next weeks and months, be sure and wish them a happy 70th birthday. Because the year 2017, which is just around the corner, marks our 70th anniversary, 70 years uh, since we became a separate service, separate from the U.S. Army, U.S. Air Force breaking barriers since 1947. So thank you very much again for inviting me to speak with you today, and I very much look forward to the conversation to come. Thank you. All right. All right, can everyone hear me? Um, well, my name's Missy Ryan. Uh, I cover military issues for the Washington Post, and it's my great honor to be here today with Secretary James. Um, and what we're going to do today is um, there's going to be a conversation between the two of us for about 30 minutes, and then I'm going to open it up to questions, and I know that I'm sure everyone in the audience is eager to get their questions to Secretary James um, about the transatlantic partnership, um, Russia, and a bunch of other issues. So we're going to um, 
just go ahead with that and get you all out of here right at noon, um, as planned. Um, Secretary James, I want to start with Russia. You mentioned Russia in your remarks as a significant threat. You painted a pretty uh, gloomy picture of the threat emanating from, from Russia. Um, now we know that the, the Russian government has allegedly hacked the US election. There have been constant violations of uh, airspace in Europe. Russia is bombing civilian targets in Syria. Just to set the stage a little bit, can you tell us about the Russian air and space capability and how it stacks up against the United States and its allies in Europe? Which, what are the areas where we continue to outpace them comfortably? What are the areas where they're catching up? First, I would say that um, the US military is the strongest military in the world. I want to begin with that statement. Mm -hmm. And certainly, that is my belief about the United States Air Force. But we have reduced ourselves, the size of our Air Force mm -hmm. over time. And so capacity is now an issue, particularly if there's multiple things going on in different theaters across the world. You can only be in one place at one time, not two places in two times. So uh, capacity is an issue. Um, we're the most technologically advanced, but what we have seen over the last 25 years is that other countries have been watching us. They began with the Persian Gulf War I mm -hmm. uh, fight, and they saw how precision and stealth and the enablements of space came together uh, to produce that revolution in military affairs, and so many have been catching up in ways that are somewhat worrisome to the United States. Of course, we want to always be one or two or three steps ahead. We don't want to allow ourselves to fall one or two, three steps behind. Sure. So we are still the best today, but we um, are concerned, and we want to make sure that we're investing and moving in the right direction to make sure that we uh, remain the best in the world. As you mentioned, we're not looking to pick a fight with anyone, certainly not with Russia or with anyone else. Um, but we do look to defend our interests, and the transatlantic partnership has been a bedrock of how we defend our interests for uh, decades, and it will remain so into the future. Are there particular things that uh, we have seen uh, in Russia's activities um, in places like Georgia and Syria um, and in Ukraine that have given you particular um, ca cause for concern in terms of their capabilities or their intentions? other than the sort of fact that there is, you know, the seizure of Crimea, the fact that they're bombing civilian targets in Syria. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how's the play, you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, well, certainly everything you just said is extremely worrisome. Sure. Um, the advent of what some have termed hybrid warfare mm -hmm. is also a worrisome development. So this is the advent of more cyber attacks. It's uh, the advent of the so-called little green men mm -hmm. that we saw in Ukraine. It's, it's creating uncertainty and chaos and then denying uh, what it was all about or that, it, that they were really there in the first place. Um, of course, we in the West, particularly I'll just speak for my own government, we in the United States, we care about attribution. We don't just throw down on somebody without having proof. Sure. Uh, so in a chaotic, uh, uncertain situation, sometimes it's difficult to get that proof, and I think that's uh, an area that Russia has capitalized on, which makes it very notable to me that in this case, our intelligence community has called them out and said, yes, they were 
uh, involved at a high level of confidence. So that takes a lot in our government for our, the totality of our community to come to that. So to me, that's quite remarkable. At the same time, they seem uh, to be, there are indications of continued problems in their air operations. We've seen that with the aircraft carrier-based operations um, uh, uh, targeting Syria. Um, they seem to be using dumb bombs rather than precision bombs in Syria. What does that tell you? Um, well, first of all, the aircraft carrier, as you point out, um, to me, that was not a decisive factor in the Syria operation. It was mm -hmm. more of a signaling, perhaps a messaging. Uh, it did give them some training, but as you pointed out, it didn't go all that well. Mm -hmm. They didn't launch that many aircraft. There weren't that many aircraft involved, and they did have two uh, notable crashes, which thankfully the pilots uh, survived. Um, but it was more the on the ground and the aircraft that took off from the ground in Syria that have made the difference. I think there's also a different approach um, to warfare that you've seen unfold with the Russian government, the Syrian government. Um, they do not. Um, they do not make huge efforts to protect innocent uh, loss of life. Whereas we, the coalition, the United States and our allies and partners, we go to great lengths. We watch and we wait. We expend a great deal of um, thought and a great deal of effort into the ISR, the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. And we strike when we're ready with a very, very high level of confidence that we know what we're striking. I don't, you do not see that level of care taken on the part of the Russian government or on the part of the Syrian government. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the European Reassurance Initiative or Deterrence Initiative. Uh, you named some of the things that the initiative has been able to support in the recent past, and certainly it seems like all of those are positive for the um, U.S.-European um, relationship. At the same time, uh, the, the, my question would be, has it succeeded in deterring Russia from some of the activities that have been problematic uh, regarding you know, um, provocative maneuvers in European airspace and all of that? Um, is it succeeding as a deterrent? Well, I think it is. Um, what we haven't seen is we haven't seen another repeat of what happened in Crimea. Right. <clears throat> so I think that's very important. Um, I did have an opportunity, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, to visit the Baltic states. Um, and those who are directly on the border, as you would expect, feel uh, the most vulnerable. So I believe, I'll just repeat what they told me, they certainly view these actions as a major uh, deterrence. And also, as I mentioned, as a general proposition, our allies would like to see more presence, more mm -hmm. interoperable equipment, more training, more exercises. Um, this was a general theme throughout all of my visits. Okay. Do you think there's a, a risk of escalating tensions? You said the United States is not obviously seeking a, a, a conflict with Russia, but is there a risk of escalating the tensions that could potentially lead to a conflict by placing additional assets in Eastern Europe and in the Baltic states and doing some of these things that are associated either with EDI or just generally speaking with the, with the desire to you know, bolster the US uh, military presence in that area? Well, of course, managing risk is something that policymakers and certainly military professionals do day in and day out. So there's risks in all that we do. But I would submit the greater risk is if we did not have a greater presence at this point in time. If we were to pull back, if we were to do less of the types of activities, to me, that would be a greater risk because I believe a lot of what's going on here is poking and testing and pushing and seeing what the response will be. And that's why I think we have to have resolve and we have to have 
um, an active response. Okay, and just going back to something you said uh, just a little bit earlier, that you know uh, the allies in the Baltic states, for example, are asking for more air force. What ex what specifically are they asking you for? What are their what are their sort of major desires? Um, uh, well, they they want more U.S. military in general. So the yeah. the most immediate, very important upcoming activity is we will be having a permanent uh, presence in the Baltics. It will be some U.S. Well, the U.S. actually will have the command in Poland, but then there will be NATO allies in a combined fashion. Multiple forces from different countries will come together to have a presence. Um, in the Baltics, and it will be a rotational situation. And so that is something that they're very much looking forward to having on the ground. They want to have continual presence through the Baltic air policing, which they have. The United States participates, though other countries participate as well. As I mentioned, Germany mm -hmm. has the mission right now. It rotates. Uh, so they certainly want to see that ongoing, and they, they want closer cooperation in, in a number of other areas as well. Okay. Do you believe that any sort of uh more muscular response is required to deal with the you know, provo Russian provocative actions and the airspace violations and all of that? Or is this, would that risk, as, as we just said, potentially escalating the conflict unnecessarily? Well, th these sorts of questions are asked literally yeah. daily. Yeah. And people are making at the highest levels of government these judgment calls on a daily basis. So based on everything I know, um, it's about right for now. But again, tomorrow something could happen. This could change. But I can assure you these, these matters are monitored at the highest levels of government daily. Okay. And you mentioned your communications with um, uh, European and NATO allies. Following the, um, the November 8th election, have you had to reach out to those allies and sort of reassure them based on um, President-elect Trump's uh, comments regarding NATO? How has that been an issue, if at all? I have not since the November um, 8th election, uh, because I haven't had an overseas mm -hmm. a trip, nor, nor have I had a telephone communication since that time. But certainly, uh, before that time, we talked a great deal about it. And what I always uh, would respond is, the American people, the system will figure this out. And regardless of who is elected president, there are checks and balances in our system. Um, that NATO has been a bedrock, Europe has been a bedrock to the United States for decades and decades to come. Mm -hmm. And although there could be some tweaks or changes on the margin, I at least didn't believe that there would be a fundamental shift that would be worrisome to them. It is remarkable that it's sort of a, a time of increased anxiety, both in, in Europe um, uh, because of events like the Brexit, um, and then you know because of some of the comments that I just mentioned regarding um, NATO and potentially questioning some of the security commitments that have been um, fundamental to NATO. Um, do you sense that in your conversations either prior to the election or, or subsequent that you have had with um, partners when they visit? Um, do you sense the, the anxiety that the, the European nations have about the sort of trajectory of the alliance? Um, they had questions is the way I would put it. Um, which, of course, allowed me to go back on a message that I regularly deliver, and that is the importance of everybody doing their part. You know, everybody, I don't know of a single country in NATO that isn't experiencing some sort of economic difficulties. Even those countries that are doing relatively well by, by our standards, there are many tugs and pulls mm -hmm. on society and on government spending. So we all share in this, and it's tough politics for everybody, but everybody has to do their part. And their part by the, um, by the document is 
2%. So if not 2% this year, it's important for everybody to get on a trajectory right. uh, to get there in some reasonable amount of time. Back in the 1980s, when I was on the House Armed Services Committee staff, mm -hmm. one, one of my assignments back then was the NATO burden sharing panel. And I think it was an old issue back in yeah. the 80s. So this has been around as a topic uh, for a long time, but certainly it's top of mind now sure. with the election. And sure. it's my hope, as hard as it might be, because government spending is tight everywhere, that the allies who aren't at 2% can get themselves on a trajectory to reach that point. Okay, I have two more Russia questions for you. Um, how do you see the, the, if you could just comment a little bit on the situation we have in Syria where the United States and Russia are operating in the same airspace. Um, you know, what has that experience been like um, in terms of managing that, um, thinking about that at the Pentagon and what do you see as the potential risks there or, or is it, can this be managed as it has seemingly so far? Well, what we've done so far is we've had um, deconfliction procedures, uh, mm -hmm. phone calls to be able to deconflict airspace, not to coordinate, but to deconflict and to have safety in the air. And so far, this has worked quite well. Um, we have been operating largely in different parts of Syria. I say largely, not exclusively, but largely. Uh, what has been troubling to us, um, I'll just speak for the US Air Force, is that there's a, quite a say-do gap with Russia. They say mm -hmm. one thing, but then they do another thing. So mm -hmm. they said they entered the fray in Syria to help fight uh, ISIL uh, and terrorism. Mm -hmm. But what they have done is they have propped up the government and the interest of Bashar al-Assad, the government of Syria. Uh, there's been very little action against ISIL. Rather, they're going against the groups that are going against Assad and threatening his direct interests and the, the territory that he is most concerned with. So that's a major say-do gap. They say that they are using precision-guided munitions to take care, not to kill innocent uh, uh, humans. But in fact, 80 90% are the dumb bombs. So there's a lot of say-do gaps there. And there's a lack of trust uh, between the Russians and the US as a result of not just that, but many, many other things. Uh, most recently, um, uh, obviously, Aleppo has fallen, but within days of that, ISIL overran Palmyra. Mm -hmm. And um, the United States has begun uh, bombing around Palmyra. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Russians and the Syrians, upon uh, fleeing Palmyra as they were about to be overrun, left behind uh, equipment, mm -hmm. artillery, trucks, uh, tanks. And so we are going in now and we are destroying them with a variety of aircraft to include A-10s and uh, MQ-1s and a uh, number of other uh, aircraft as well. So the battlefield, the makeup of the battlefield can shift and does shift daily. Uh, what was your perspective, I'm curious, what was your perspective on the proposal for increased co military coordination between the United States and Russia and Syria? Uh, there was a proposal that sort of fell by the wayside to um, not do joint targeting, but to share information um, in order to target the Nusra Front? We were prepared to execute had that agreement reach fruition, but there was concern. Uh, there, were con there was concern in the Pentagon precisely because mm -hmm. of the lack of, of trust. Um, so uh, of course, it, it did not reach fruition, and so we are where we are. OK. And last question on Russia. Um, what would be your recommendations to your successor um, regard, regarding how to deal with the Russian threat that you mentioned in your remarks? 
Um, I do think, um, based on everything that I have read and understand of Russia, um, Russia is a country that does um, understand force. Um, and so to, to present a strong front at a time like this, at a time when I believe they are pushing and poking and testing, yeah. I think the alliance needs to demonstrate that resolve and show force. And so what I would suggest to my successor is continue to support, to the maximum extent possible, the role of the United States Air Force in the Baltic policing, in the air dominance uh, uh, actions that I talked about. Mm -hmm ongoing rotations, uh, like we did on the F-22, like we're about to do with the F-15s in the spring, like I'm thinking in the not too dis distant future, the F-35. Right. These are the types of um, approaches which not only demonstrate that resolve, but they also are great training opportunities. They provide um, experience with interoperable equipment. And airmen to airmen, it, it, it works well when we get to work with our counterparts. Great. Um, well, I want to turn to a couple other issues. Um, you mentioned the, the threat of um, migration coming into to Europe um, and the sort of burden that that's placed on European nations, number one, having to provide for, for refugees and also sort of think about security threats that could come along with that. What is the Air Force role in that? Um, you mentioned the Global Hawk. What other, in what other ways can the Air Force specifically contribute to helping uh, manage that threat? Well, the, probably the ISR is the greatest one. Mm -hmm. Airlift can, from time to time, mm -hmm. be helpful depending if people have to go from point A to point B. When we've gotten, obviously, more in a wartime environment, there can be airdrops in a humanitarian mm -hmm. type of an environment. Now, this is much more extreme than, than what is going on in the, in the European states at this point. Um, but the, the Air Force also has certain intelligence uh, associations, so you know, we have intelligence assets as do the other military services and the IC community as well. So the sharing of intelligence is something that we're trying to do more of across the alliance. Okay, and there's been a lot of um, discussion, obviously, um, in the last year, year and a half, about um, the threat of Islamic State um, plots within Europe um, with the attacks in, in Paris and Brussels and elsewhere. Um, what is the Air Force role in that in terms of, in addition to intelligence sharing, what specifically does the Air Force um, contribute to that? So other than the intelligence, you know, yeah. sharing information whenever mm -hmm. possible, uh, that's our top role that's for right. that sort of a, a threat, I would say. Okay, great. Because that's much more of a law enforcement. Sure. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about the Air Force itself and the, and the trajectory of, of where the, the U.S. Air Force is headed. Um, you know, one of the things that um, people talk about is how the, the, the fleet is, is aging um, and that readiness has really been under pressure um, because of continuous deployments, because of the budgetary issues. Um, how do you, how would you um, recommend dealing with this in the next five years? What is the best way to cope with the, the readiness um, and the sort of strains that the force has been facing? Well, whenever we talk about readiness, I think it's really important that we step back a moment and we say, ready to do what? Because mm -hmm. you heard me say the U.S. military is still the strongest and the best in the world, and I absolutely believe that. Um, so if you were to say, is the U.S. Air Force ready to do its missions, which have been continual, thousands of bombing missions, even more ISR and humanitarian and all of these missions, are we ready to do all of that? The answer is, you're damn right we are. We're doing it, and we've been doing it for the better part of 25 years. 
But where we have our readiness concerns is are we ready to do a high-end fight? So there's where if we would get into an anti-axis aerial denial situation, if it would be a very complex fight against a foe or foes that could shoot us down, interfere with us in space, or make it a more complex environment, there is where we are concerned that we don't have sufficiently high levels of readiness. Like a Russia or a China. Like a Russia or a China. So what to do? The answer is it's several fold. The greatest thing that we could do in the near term is increase the size of the Air Force. So I mentioned where this we are, you know, we've been downsizing for 25 years. We're now the smallest active duty force that we've been since 1947 when we became an Air Force. And you can't do too many things at once if you're that small because capacity matters. So to increase the size modestly, I'm not talking about hundreds of thousands of people, but that would allow us to plug some holes and also build up certain capabilities, particularly ISR, cyber, and a few other areas. Fighter pilots were short. So these are some areas that we want to build up. So grow the Air Force is the first thing I would recommend. The second thing is continue to fund um, some of these high-end capabilities, particularly in the training environment, to get ready. So like this means our upgrade our ranges, for mm -hmm. example, so that we can practice against the simulated high-end threats. Uh, what your mother told you, practice makes perfect. There really is uh, quite a lot mm -hmm. of truth to that. So when our pilots see these kinds of environments in the simulated world, 100% of the time they're going to do better in the real world if they've had that uh, ability to practice. So beef up certain things like that in the readiness accounts is another a key recommendation that I would make. And then keep modernizing. That's the other part of it. Okay. And what about new technologies and acquisition? Um, and to what extent can the Air Force do that to, in the way that it would like to because of the budgetary constraints? Well, the budgetary constraints are real. And um, there's you know, been discussions about increasing defense spending. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, we have got to once and for all send sequestration to the dustbin of history. There's talk of doing that. We've been talking about that for two or three years now, and it hasn't happened. I'm certainly hopeful maybe this spring it will because that's the first thing. That has to come off. And then some additional funding would certainly be very welcome so that we can, by the way, we're also modernizing not only our conventional forces, but we have an imperative to modernize our nuclear forces. Right. Uh, what would be a reasonable uh, increase in the, the end strength? In the, if you're talking about growing the size of the Air Force, what would be a reasonable well, we, we ended our um, fiscal year at about 317,000. Mm -hmm. right. So we would, I would like to see growth over the next several years to the mid-320s. I'm sure we could you know, use more people than that, yep. but I would say at least to the mid-320s. Okay, and if there, was, uh, if there were to be a budget uh, increase for the Air Force in the next administration, what would be sort of what your priorities? Would it be the personnel? Or if, if there was one thing that you could choose to spend that money on, what would it be? Personnel. Personnel. All right. Okay, I want to ask a little bit about the, uh, the election. And we have just about five minutes before I'm going to open it up to the, to the audience. Um, without getting into the sort of politics of the election, what do you think that the, the change in administration and the change um, in parties will mean for the Air Force? Well, first let me say we've had a, you know, the transition team has been in the Pentagon now for, <clears throat> for weeks, and um, they have been meeting regularly, so I had the opportunity to meet with them. The mm -hmm. chief of staff of the Air Force very, has been uh, conducted in a very professional way. 
Um, they have, for the most part, very much been in a listening mode, so asking questions, receiving briefings. They've been listening. They have welcomed, uh, certainly written down suggestions about if you know if you had some more money, where would you put it? So they asked me the same question. Good. I said people. That's the number one place I yeah. would put it. Um, so all of that, I think, is um, uh, being conducted at pace. Once again, there is a lot of anticipation that there will be additional money coming to defense. And so the question is how quickly and where will it go? So these will be questions, of course, that that team, rather than I, will, will have to answer. I just hope that, that the people issues will come out on top, because I want to reiterate, I think that's the greatest way to alleviate some of the readiness concerns. Uh, in the near term, um, as well as alleviate some of the deplo frequent deployment and the mm -hmm. family uh, concerns sure. that we've been seeing. What about the uh, president-elect's comments regarding the F-35 and uh, Air Force One? I mean, is that damaging for the sort of industry-institution relationships, or is that something that you know won't really amount to much? What's your perspective on that? Well, I think any incoming president or any incoming leader is going to be asking questions, mm -hmm. right? So this was, in effect, a way of um, throwing a, a question out there through Twitter about the cost of, um, of these systems, which, let's face it, this is a lot of money we're talking mm -hmm. about for both the F-35 and for Air Force One. But with time and as additional material is presented and briefings are had, the complexity of both of these programs come, come to the light. And so it's not quite as easy as it might seem to get these costs down. There are ways of doing it. So for example, in the case of, of Air Force One, the complexity is it's more than a 747. If you just look at the cost of a 747 and then you look at the projected costs of Air Force One, it appears astronomical. But Air Force One is in fact a flying White House with ultra high levels of security and communications and defensive protection measures built in. So it is nothing like you have ever experienced before. Mm -hmm. um, and that is what uh, involves the cost. Moreover, we made a judgment to go sole source on that. So if you were to compete it, maybe you could get the cost down. If you were to change some of these requirements, maybe you could get the cost down. The US Air Force, by the way, in this case, didn't develop the requirements for Air Force One. The professional communicators and security people in the White House uh, develop those requirements. So if you were to strip away some of those requirements, you could get the cost down. So there's a variety of approaches. And again, the new team will, will get a full chance to explore that and determine. On the F-35, um, it certainly has had a history of, of cost overruns and problems, and there's just no doubt about that. But if you look at the recent years, the F-35, the cost has been coming down. <clears throat> it's going to soon be approaching, the per plane cost will soon be approaching a fourth generation plane cost. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty good deal, fifth generation at fourth generation prices. But again, the past is the past, and it was a difficult past. So we're focused on the future. And once again, as all of these facts are presented, then the, the new team, uh, the new president, mm -hmm. can make up his mind. You think that they might get in there and see the details and maybe think about it differently? 
I think the more details you are exposed to, it certainly opens up you know, the aperture to see what the possibilities might be and what the constraints might be. Okay, and just one final question before we open it up. Um, what's next for you, Secretary James? I don't know, is the Washington Post hiring, Missy? <laughs> it might be. You, you offered me a job? Yeah, I'm gonna be unemployed pretty soon, but um, yeah, I don't know. I think beach is going to be that in my good. immediate future. I'm looking forward to some time off and uh, my children live in New York. I might mm -hmm. crash on in on their pads for a little while until they uh, don't want me there anymore. So I don't really have any immediate plans, but I'm sure something will well, present. Well, well-deserved break um, for sure. Um, well, listen, let's open it up to the audience. I think we're going to have some. Uh, can we just go ahead and do questions, or are there other microphones? Okay, um, maybe start in the in the front with Sydney, and please just identify yourself and make sure that your question is a question. Hi, I'm Sidney Friedberg for Breaking Defense, question mark. Uh, I wanted to p pull a little bit on the, on the F-35 issue. You've defended the program. You've mentioned you know, in passing you know, it's important versus anti-accessory denial, some of these high-end issues, and a lot of allies are buying it. Sort of, you know, what's the case you would make to the transition team, perhaps you've already made to the transition team, you know, for this program? What is the sort of game-changing value of it for the U.S., for the allies, uh, that makes the price tag, admittedly high, worth it in your opinion? Well, the case is the threats. The, if you look at the various um, scenarios where we may have to go into combat around the world, and I'm not talking about against ISIL in the Middle East, I'm talking about the types of high-end threats. And you said it, Sydney, it's the anti-axis area denial environments. Um, the threats are what, to me, sell this capability. It sells, sells the program. Um, so that's point one. And of course, the new team is in the process. Not everybody has their clearances yet, but those who have their clearances are able to get some of these briefings. And so that is happening. And then the other piece of it is don't just look at the, the, uh, the past, but look at the recent past, I'll say. Look at the last few years of experience on the program where um, there have been great strides and I think great accomplishments made in bringing down the price. So to get a fifth generation capability, which all those who have experienced it agree, it is just a cut above um, any other aircraft because of those capabilities. And to be able to get that at a fourth generation price, something like you might pay for an F-16, for example, that's beginning to sound much more reasonable. Now, can the cost be driven down more? Perhaps, and I know certainly the current leadership, the JPO and so on, they're focused on this each and every day. I know that industry has made concessions to try to bring down uh, the price. So can more of this be accomplished? I would say probably yes, and, and the pressure should remain on to do just that. Okay, the gentleman in the uh, second row with the turtleneck, right, just right there. Uh, I'm Harlan Allman with the Atlantic Council. Deb, thanks for a really professional and informative briefing. Um, space did not allow you to talk enough about two issues. One, as you know, Ash Carter has set a four plus one matrix for planning in which the United States military is needed to uh, deter and defeat, if necessary, Russia or China, whatever. And second, you didn't talk about the offset strategy, though you obviously inferred to it. Could you comment about Air Force thinking about how do we go about deterring and defeating Russia or China, what's the thinking in that regard? And could you also relate this back to what the Air Force is doing to follow Bob Work's uh, third offset strategy that he's made the centerpiece of his administration? 
Well, of course, there are um, joint war plans that are written against a variety of different scenarios that could happen around the world. And for each of these war plans, the United States Air Force is front and center. And one thing I will tell you about the U.S. Air Force is not only are we front and center in each of these scenarios, but we're front and center on day one and day two. It's not day 30 or day 40. It's right off the bat. Um, we are those who would kick down the door, so to speak. So we would be that front line of defense. So we're heavily involved um, in all of that. And as I mentioned, if there's a worrisome aspect to this, it is we have become sufficiently small, both in numbers of people and in numbers of aircraft, that if there were multiple things happening simultaneously around the world, there's where the capacity may suggest that we couldn't do all of it. We might have to swing and let one area go, for example, and nobody wants to do that. So that's a key concern. In terms of the third offset, this is simply um, a way that we are looking for what would be the next big advantage that the United States and our allies could acquire for a future uh, conflict. So just as um, the nuclear, having nuclear weapons back in the 40s and 50s was quite an advantage. That was what we call the first offset of the 20th century because no one else in the world for a while had that capability. But then others acquired it and it didn't have quite the same value as it once did. Still very valuable, but not the same value. Then the second offset is frequently termed the combination of precision weaponry, stealth, and all of which is enabled by our space assets. And we saw that in the Persian Gulf War. That was shock and awe to many in the world who witnessed that uh, in those early hours of that conflict. But for 25 years, people have been watching how this works and they've been catching up. So the question is, what's the next offset going to be? What's the next big thing? Um, we think it's some combination of technologies, all of which are designed to make the humans more, have greater endurance, greater speed, greater ability to make decisions quickly, make sense of, you know, many, many sources of data, um, what's the important data amongst all of that clutter, and then push out decisions in a very fast way. So we're investing in a variety of technologies that would give us some element of what I just said. So technology is certainly part of that, but so is tactics, techniques, and procedures. So it's how do you put all of these technologies together into a process and procedure <laughs> way when you're going to be executing a plan. And then the third element is people. You've got to make sure we're an all-volunteer force. We've got to make sure that we continue to have the very best people that can think agilely, who can um, uh, problem solve, who can be creative, um, who can take those tactics, techniques, and procedures, and those technologies and put it all to our best advantage. Okay, right here in the front row, I think there was a question. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Damon Wilson here, Executive Vice President of the Atlantic Council. Uh, thank you very much, Madam Secretary, for your service. Thanks for coming back to the Atlantic Council for this conversation. And thank you for your service on our board before you assumed this role. Um, you underscored the importance of the, of the aptly renamed European Deterrence Initiative and the U.S. presence, uh, particularly in the Baltic states, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria. But there's a question about the timelines, the perspective in terms of our, how long U.S. forces need to be present in those places. How do you think about the planning assumptions for our presence uh, on the eastern flank, if you will, 
uh, and the funding that supports them, as I understand it, it's really in the operations budget. Shouldn't this be something that over time is put into the base budget to recognize the fact that it isn't a one-year deployment, that we're likely to be there for, uh, for quite a while? So yes, it should go into the base budget. All of this, or most of this, should go into the base budget. But of course, the, the folks who are here living in Washington know that the OCO budget doesn't count for purposes of counting money that we spend in the federal government. So how crazy is that? It's kind of an accounting crazy. situation. Um, but if we can lift sequestration, if we can clean up some of these accounting situations that we have backed into in the last however many years it's been, 10, 15 years, um, then it would certainly make for a more clean situation. But for now, that's the way we fund it because that's the way we can fund it and get it done. The most important thing is to get it done. And I consider it to be um, a perpetual mission. In other words, any mission can stop, but there is no plan to stop it. So to me, it's a perpetual mission. It'll be reviewed on an annual basis. Um, and unless the world changes fundamentally, I don't see any reason why that would change in the near term. Okay, in the second row, and then I promise we'll get to the back. Hi, Lara Seligman with Aviation Week. Good to see you, Secretary. Um, I wanted to ask um, a little bit more about um, President-elect Trump's tweets. Um, <laughs> the, the Air Force One tweet and the F-35 tweet, um, I would say, rattled the defense industry a little bit. Um, so do you think that, um, you th do you think he has a point, I guess, without being too political about it? Is it good to put this kind of pressure on the defense industry, or do you think it's better to do this kind of negotiating behind closed doors as opposed to on Twitter? You know, time will tell. Time will tell. Um, what is good is it's good to have a focus on cost-saving measures, and as I mentioned, uh, that focus has been very much in place, and if you look back over the last several years, the cost has been brought down. I, I give the credit on that to the team who's been negotiating that, you know, in the, in the JPO. I give credit to industry as well, because as I said, they have made certain concessions in this as well. But, you know, you've heard me speak a lot of times, Lara, and you know I have three priorities, taking care of people, uh, getting the balance between readiness and modernization right, because we need both in our U.S. Air Force, and make every dollar count, which is my way of saying cost consciousness, and we've got to be the most efficient team possible. So I'm all for that uh, focus. Twitter is a different way of doing it, and you know, time, time will tell. I hope those costs will continue to come down. Okay, in the back, uh, the woman in the black shirt in the aisle. Thank you. Hi, Secretary James Lee Jung Greco, Flight Global. Um, again, another F-35 question. Um, I'm wondering how you continue pitching the F-35 to any new customers overseas uh, when the president-elect, again, has these comments that it's out of control. And on top of that, you already have foreign governments like Canada that are already skeptical of the price tag associated with this program. Well, the good news about the F-35 in this regard is 
Um, we don't even have to pitch it. There are other countries, it was just delivered to Israel. Um, Italy has is, 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 is got the F-35 now coming. It's, it's right, it was just developed in Italy, or produced, I should say, in Italy. So in a way, it is um, selling itself, you might say. Now, of course, we still do talk about it. I certainly have talked about it. But I'm not the only one, and the U.S. government is not the only one, because other allies now are acquiring it and they want it. Now, in the case of Canada, Canada has decided, of course, to bridge with the F-18s, but they haven't shut the door on the F-35 down the line. So time will tell, and of course, that will be their judgment. They do remain as part of the program. They are contributing to be a, a part of the program, albeit they have not decided to actually purchase it at this point in time. But again, that remains an open question for the future. Okay, we're going to take another one from the back and then go to Tony. Um, the gentleman with the white shirt and the... And the Thank you, uh, Ben Homer, Innovation Planning Agency. Uh, we haven't talked at all about uh, North Korea, and so I'm interested in sort of your views on the current threat and uh, the role of the Air Force uh, in responding to that and uh, just moving forward where we go from here with it. So North Korea is a, a major threat. We talked, a, or Harlan talked a little bit about the four plus one. So, you know, North Korea is one of the four, let's put it that way. North Korea, Iran, China, Russia, and then terrorism, particularly ISIL, but other forms of terrorism. So that's the four plus one. Um, the US Air Force is very involved um, in uh, deterring, countering that threat. So we have what we call the continuous bomber presence that uh, takes place on Guam. Uh, we have had B-1s, B-52s, and B-2s deployed to Guam that do periodic uh, patrols in the Pacific. They're there. They're um, available at a moment's notice to, to do whatever we would need them to do. Um, similarly, in South Korea, we have uh, forces stationed there along with the Army, along with the rest of the U.S. military. So we have a very, very close relationship um, with our South Korean uh, counterparts. Um, and then finally, I will tell you, as North Korea has been um, testing nuclear weapons, testing launch capabilities of late, the reason why we know a lot of this is because the U.S. Air Force has the monitoring and the detection systems to know exactly what went on here. Was it a nuclear weapon or was it something else? And what was the possible yield of it? And you know, we have all of those systems to be able to then explain to our um, leaders, our allied partners, and in some cases the world what has happened here. It goes back to the importance of attribution. Just want to follow up on the North Korea uh, question. Um, because the Air Force is so close to, the, close to this, do you think that the, Air, the North Korean threat is getting the attention it deserves from within the sort of U.S. national security community? I mean, they've obviously made strides in their, in their program in recent years, but um, you know, often we're focused on, on ISIS, on, on Russia. Um, to not, and not in the same way that we are in North Korea. Well, and I will tell you, we are very focused on North Korea. And there are things that we talk about, and there are things that we don't talk about. But we're very focused on North Korea. OK. All right, Tony. Hi, Madam Secretary. I'm Tony Capasio with Bloomberg News. Among the Trump comments lately was implications that the, the revolving door in Washington has led to some of the out-of-control cost of the F-35, you know, his words. Is it, does he have a point in terms of the revolving door? Are post-employment regulations tough enough 
from where you sit. And he did, he did say last week in his speech, he wanted to impose a lifetime ban on those who issued the major contracts and even the smaller contracts. What's your view on that? My view is the totality of the restrictions that are placed um, on people coming into government to serve at these high-level positions are pretty strong. Um, I've lived this, so I mean, I had to, when I came into government out of industry, I had to divest stock, I had to uh, make all sorts of declarations. I mean, it, and you, you make your whole life public. I, I think it's not an overstatement to say that uh, people who um, are coming into these senior cabinet level or even sub-cabinet level jobs have much stronger legal requirements p uh, upon them than the president has upon him, if you see what I mean. So um, I think they're pretty strong. So I haven't seen his proposal exactly. There, there, there already are lifetime bans for people who have had particular matters, who've worked on particular matters. So what I understand of it, it's, it's quite strong. And, um, but obviously, he'll, he'll have the opportunity to do his own review of that. Post-employment, you're talking about coming into the government, the post-employment also. Right, so the post-employment, um, there already is a lifetime ban for certain individuals who have worked, and it's a definition in the law called a particular matter. So that's already a lifetime ban. For me, for example, I will have a, a two-year ban on being able to represent back for a company to the government, a two-year ban on that. I'm not a procurement official. Obviously, uh, you, there are people who are procurement officials, and there are others who are policy overseers and whatnot. Um, so the, the rules are different for different types of people. But what I'm saying is the totality of all of this is really quite strong. And um, the proof is, if you look at the number of positions that people from industry actually occupy, it's not as high as perhaps you would like because um, they are that stringent to come in and you know when you come in what the restrictions will be on the way out. So a woman in the blue in the back. Hi ma'am, uh, Courtney Albin with Inside the Air Force. Um, I just wanted to go back real quick to your comments about um, some recent, I guess, cost successes on F-35 over the last several years. Um, for, for the LRIP-9 contract, um, there was a unilateral uh, contract action that was utilized for that. And I just wonder, um, are we going to see more of that, do you think, as a way to reduce costs? And um, if so, what, what concerns do you have about what that says uh, to industry? Well, I think the unilateral action came as a result of what had become a very, very prolonged uh, period of negotiation. And it was a feeling where there just wasn't going to be any more progress to be made. And so the unilateral action uh, was imposed. Now, back to this question of are we being sufficiently good stewards of the taxpayer money, there's where the JPO had uh, a choice to make, or the contracting officer uh, who was charged with making this decision. The choice was do we continue to negotiate? Do you give in to perhaps what would have been a higher cost to the taxpayer in order to conclude negotiations. At the end of the day, this contracting official decided to impose a unilateral uh, solution. So that's a fairly um, unusual thing. It's not done all that much. So I wouldn't say that it might be more or less in the future. I think it really depends. And it was the unique set of circumstances um, in this particular case and the length of the negotiation and the belief that there just wasn't going to be any more progress made. 
Great. We're going to go to the third row here. Uh, Sean. Thank you. Sean Carberry, Federal Computer Week. Um, you mentioned early in your remarks uh, cyber being one of the key domains uh, for the Air Force at this point and obviously part of the whole partnership concern. Um, can you talk about where things stand with the, the Air Force cyber campaign plan at this point, which is supposed to be dealing with everything from workforce to hardening systems to uh, interoperability, things like that? And is this plan something that is um, uh, established enough that it's going to likely survive transition? And so what would be the concerns that you would highlight going forward for cyber in terms of immediate priorities to, uh, to deal with? Um, I think we have made very good progress in terms of the um, common security environment for networks and the um, protection of networks for the Air Force, and really I'm saying across the military in recent years, there's been a lot of strides there. Uh, we're now, as you point out, we're shifting to the other part of the equation, which is the cyber protection of many of our weapons systems. Because nowadays, think about it, even legacy systems that were you know, built years and years ago, before software was um, uh, a key component, those have all been upgraded. So even the old systems depend heavily on cyberware, and certainly the new systems very, very heavily on, on uh, software. And so that is where we have to take great care. So we have laid in additional monies for red teams and you know, ways of testing and making sure that there are no vulnerabilities. If there are vulnerabilities, we hop on it, we address it. Uh, right off the bat. So this is going to be, however, an ongoing situation because um, cyber is continually changing and uh, adversaries and people who are attempting to break in are, are very clever and they can change their tactics, techniques, new tools become available. So this is something that we're going to have to remain vigilant on uh, for probably decades to come. Okay. Um, maybe the gentleman with the glasses right there in the, in the yes. Thank you. Madam Secretary, I'm Charlie Adstutt, retired Army. You mentioned uh, very briefly the fighter pilot shortage, and I'd like you to elaborate on that a little bit. What's the cause? What are you doing to uh, increase the recruitment of fighter pilots and uh, what the trend lines look like? We have, um, first of all, we're monitoring all of our pilot ranks, and we're monitoring with concern. We have current shortages, and the most uh, important one, or the one that is most worrisome at present, is the fighter pilots, but we're watching the other pilot categories as well. So what's going on here? There's a number of factors at play. Um, number one, the airlines are once again hiring. So airline hiring is quite cyclical, but we're up against it again where there's a trend, an upward trend in hiring, and of course, what better pilots for them to hire than the trained pilots of the U.S. military, particularly the, the Air Force, but not the Air Force exclusively. So that's one factor. Um, another factor is, and of course, when you go to the, when you go to the airlines, um, you actually take a pay cut, as I understand it, for a year or two. But after about two years, you make it up, and then you begin to make more than what we currently can, can pay. Uh, but then it's more stability of schedule. It's more family time. Uh, but perhaps less interesting work. So there becomes the trade-off for our pilots. Um, so the airline hiring is one important thing. Another thing that is driving our pilots 
uh, to leave us is just the pace of operations and family separations and family concerns and the stresses that come with that. So the old saying, you, you recruit an individual but you retain a family is really true here. And after 25 years of near constant combat operations, this is taking its toll on some of our families. So that's another thing. A third thing is we haven't ramped up the production of pilots. So we have retention issues, but then we also need to ramp up the production of pilots more. So we need to take steps to do that. If we produce more pilots, that will help the shortage situation. And then finally, there's the factor we know from exit surveys that pilots and others who leave us for that matter are um, they get discouraged by additional duties. So pilots love to fly and maintainers love to maintain, but they don't like to do lots of extra paperwork and additional duties that um, are not um, inspiring to them, I'll say. So anyway, so what are we doing about it? We've asked for an increase in bonus authority to help stem the tide going to the civilian airlines, at least where the pay is a draw. And we did make some progress with Congress, not as much as we would have liked, but we are getting an increased bonus authority. We have attacked the additional duties and some of these additional trainings that are a dissatisfier. More to follow on that, but we've taken a good first schwack at it. That, that's a technical term, by the way, <laughs> schwack and more to follow on that. The third thing is we're going to be setting up some new uh, training units so that we produce more pilots from the get-go. So we're going to announce uh, over the next few months a couple of locations where we will have more training of more pilots. So that's a, another element. Uh, so there's a variety of factors at play here. Oh, and one last thing, very important. When the pilots and the units come home, we need to manage their time at home station better. So what has happened is sometimes pilots and units will come home from a deployment overseas. They'll be home for two days, and we'll send them off TDY for three weeks to do something. That's not so good, right? You have to manage the time so that people have time at home. Mm -hmm. um, so how to manage that differently and not immediately send them on a TDY or to some other location, that goes to the quality of the family experience. Okay, we have time for just a couple more questions. Uh, the very back row there, and then um, maybe we should just take a couple. That I think we can take probably three questions, and you can just answer them all together. The gentleman right there, and then uh, right there in the second to last row. Can I borrow your pen? Yeah, sure. Madam Secretary, I'm Paul Schenkman with U.S. News and World Report. Nice to see you. Um, on last week, the Chinese Navy picked up a U.S. Navy underwater drone. Um, the conventional thinking is that that was an unprecedented act and in direct response to some of Mr. Trump's comments about China and then more specifically his phone call with the Taiwanese president. I'd be interested to ask, does that comport with your understanding of the way that the Chinese military operates? Has it caused you to prepare anything for the Air Force that wasn't in place before? And what do you think this says about the reality of rhetoric uh, transitioning into direct action when it comes to military events? Okay, and then the gentleman right there with the check shirt. Hi, it's Scott Massioni with Federal News Radio. Um, you have changed a number of personnel uh, things, which you mentioned just, just recently about uh, cutting additional duties, um, cutting down some training time, uh, and that's in order to, to hire and recruit better people. Um, do you see that same urgency to get those people coming into the, the next uh, administration since the landing team's been in there and, and kind of continuing that kind of work? Okay, and then the gentleman in the uniform right there. 
Thank you very much. Um, Michael Trautemann, German Air Attaché. Uh, Madam Secretary, you elaborated on the F-35 uh, transferring the air war um, to come. Uh, you spent, together with the F-35 nations, an awful lot of work in uh, fourth and fifth generation integration, air, life, um, air and virtual integration, life and virtual integration. And uh, my question, how can we make sure that nations uh, that do not procure the F-35 but pitch in uh, quite good uh, capabilities in the first and maybe even on the third generation part are still part of the air war to come? So how can we uh, handle this integration also on uh, non-F-35 nations? Okay, Thank we've you. got three questions in three minutes. So Okay, all right. <laughs> The Chinese drone. I think I think it was unprecedented. I don't know of another situation uh, quite like this. Um, does it comport with the way I understand the Chinese government operates? What I understand about the Chinese is they act upon orders. They do not sort of make stuff up at the lowest level on their own. Mm -hmm. So that sounds like maybe it was a coordinated um, action from the top, but of course I don't know. I'm speculating, but that's based on my understanding of the way um, Chinese uh, personnel are trained in their armed forces. And was it in response to something that Mr. Trump said? I, I just have literally no idea. It might have just been um, uh, an opportunity to send a signal of some sort. Uh, I will say this, uh, this drone was operated by the military Sealift Command, so it's not exactly a front-end fighting uh, part of the force. Um, it is about six feet long, so it's pretty small, and uh, it travels just under the water, so you can see it when you're above, above the water, and it was doing scientific types of collections like the degree of salt in the water and things of this nature. So it was not a surveillance uh, drone. This is my understanding of it, and I further understand that um, we are hopeful it will be returned within the next couple of days. Um, I believe the second question, I, at least I wrote down, the landing teams that are in the Pentagon, are they as focused as we have been focused on some of the people issues and like additional duties and growing the force? And the answer is, I, I believe so. Certainly we have hit those themes strongly with them, uh, particularly the growing of the force. And we did set up an ongoing body that is going to be continually reviewing matters like the additional duties and that is a body that will be chaired by military and civil servants, people who, re, who will remain. So it is certainly my hope that that focus will continue because it is very important. As I said, I know it from my travels, we know it from our exit interviews, that this is a big dissatisfier to our people. And then lastly, how to ensure that the non-F-35 nations are still very much part of any future air campaign. I think the key there is it's crucial to keep training together, to keep having these um, exchange programs that we have. The more that we work together, that will facilitate any future operation. Certainly it will facilitate any future combat operation. And let's remember that it's going to be many, many years before the US has a fleet that no longer has fourth generation. Uh, aircraft in it. So we ourselves have to make sure that we can interoperate and we certainly want to continue to make sure that we can uh, be interoperable with countries around the world who have fourth generation and other capabilities that are not quite the F-35. Okay, well listen, I want to thank Secretary James for being here in a very informative session and best of luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thank All you, right. Missy.
Thanks, everybody. Thank you.